I'm Joe Costigan and welcome to Backchat, a mini-podcast series where each episode I'll talk to a different guest about political and social issues that young people in Ireland care about. This episode I talked to Solidarity and Socialist Party TD Mick Barry about his own time in politics, the Irish education system and whether or not socialism is the answer to our problems. Thanks for talking to me today, Mick. I just wanted to start off by talking a bit about your own background in politics, because I know you've been involved in activism from quite a young age, and then you moved on to electoral politics. So what made you want to get your start in it initially? Um, Well, I I joined my first political organisation when I was uh, 17 years of age, uh, straight after my leaving cert. I don't think that there was any one particular reason uh, why I got active in politics. It was probably a combination of factors. There was rising unemployment at the time and a sharp divide between uh, people with big money and ordinary people. Um, the coming to power of the Thatcher government in Britain in 79 uh, was a factor in my thinking and I was big into my music. I was into punk and new wave which had an anti-establishment feel to it. So I was very open to socialist ideas probably from the age of 14, 15 uh, and I got active when I was uh, 17 years old. And would you recommend for people to join political parties at such a young age, even though your opinions can kind of change and grow over time? Yeah, I would. Uh, I, I don't believe in this idea that uh, politics should be the property or the preserve uh, of uh, old people, usually old men. I think that um, you know, uh, young people getting active in politics is uh, in many ways uh, the key to change. I think that life experience uh, is important, of course, and lots of people, you know, get active in politics after having some more life experience under their belt in their 20s, uh, etc. But I, I would encourage young people to get active in politics before that if they feel it's right for them, yeah. And do you think that it's as important for people to get involved in local action groups or grassroots organisations as it is for people to actually join established political parties? Um, well, in some ways, getting involved in activist grassroots politics is the key to all wisdom, right? because it's it's a more positive start in politics if you f- start fighting on an issue like housing justice or you know repeal of the anti-abortion laws uh, than if you say I'm going to join a political party and get elected to a council it's 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 a better start in my opinion but i th- i think when you get involved in single issue campaigning or activist grassroots campaigning you very quickly realize that you're up against uh, not just the government uh, but the state um, the established media, um, the way in which the laws are constructed, uh, and that a broader change is needed, uh, and that you need to have uh, a, a strong anti-capitalist party which campaigns across the board, not just on a single issue. And do you think that your own party solidarity, as well as people before profit, who you know you're in an alliance with in the doll, do you think you're the only true socialist alternatives? Well, I, I'm a member of the Socialist Party which is part of Solidarity. So I'm both a Socialist Party TD uh, and Solidarity uh, TD. Do I believe that Solidarity and People Before Profit are the only genuine left? Is that what you're, you're asking genuine me? Genuine socialist. Um, yeah, I, I think you've got this term left so that you know, anyone who's more radical or, or less conservative than Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael uh, are seen as uh, left. But a, a, a lot of the groups who are tagged left uh, are prepared to do deals within, with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and work within the framework of the system. I think the socialist left uh, is not prepared to do deals with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael uh, and wants to strike at the root of the system. Uh, and I think the Socialist Party is very much in that tradition. 
Uh, and in fairness, I think people before profit are part of that as well. So those in parties like Sinn Féin, Labour, the Social Democrats, you wouldn't consider them actual socialists? I think that there are socialists who vote for those parties. Uh, not so much the Labour Party, but the other parties. Uh, and I think that there are uh, socialists who are members uh, of those parties. But that do- doesn't add up to a socialist party. Uh, it's the policy of the party and the policy of the leadership of the party. Uh, and I think the Social Democrats and Sinn Féin will work within the framework of the existing uh, economic system uh, rather than looking for a more fundamental change in society. Yeah. So you've made it fairly clear that you know there's no scenario where you go into government with Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil. But in a few years down the line, if we end up in a scenario where Sinn Féin have the majority of seats, do you ever see yourselves or people before profit going into government with them? Well, uh, I, I can only speak for for the Socialist Party in solidarity, uh, although I have a, a fairly good idea of where people before profit would stand. I, I think it would be a, a real step forward in Irish politics if Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael uh, were to be reduced from a majority to a minority. Uh, I think it would be a very positive step uh, if a majority in the Dáil uh, was not Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. At the moment it looks fairly clear that uh, Sinn Féin will be the largest force uh, within that uh, alternative um, group of parliamentarians. I would uh, not support the idea of going into government with Sinn Féin uh, unless Sinn Féin would do what they're not going to do uh, and that is end the capitalist system and replace it with a democratic socialist uh, society. However, I think uh, I might use my vote in a vote for Taoiseach uh, in order to keep Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael out. Uh, in other words, my vote might be used to allow an alternative government to come to power. But I wouldn't be writing any blank checks. I might say, if say, if Mary Lou Macdonald was Taoiseach, I might say, OK, uh, if you increase the minimum wage, uh, I'll vote to support that. Uh, if you increase uh, spending on the public health system, I might vote to, I will vote to support that. If you vote for um, you know, a massive increase in spending on public housing, I'll vote to support that. But bring in a budget which attacks the living standards of ordinary working class people, I'd be prepared to bring you down. So what I would hope is that in such a situation that a, uh, a movement uh, on the streets of protest and pressure, along with socialist TDs in the Dáil, uh, might put pressure on such a government to carry through policies which would represent a step forward. But in terms of signing up for a government, that would be a different thing entirely. But so if a vote for solidarity is just essentially a vote for the opposition, you know, if you're saying you're not going to go into government with any of the parties who will ever be able to form a government, why should somebody vote for you if it's really unlikely that your ideas will ever come into action if you know you're never at the decision-making table? Well, we have had policies that we support implemented. I mean, we supported... Uh, not just repeal of the anti-abortion laws, we supported um, uh, 12 weeks on request. We supported um, the scrapping of the water charges. In both cases, our policies were implemented. Uh, In both cases, uh, the role of our representatives in the Dáil was uh, a factor in that, but the strength of our forces in the Dáil was the fact that we were linked to grassroots protest campaigns in society and on the streets. That's a powerful combination. Uh, it's not that we say that we would never go into a government. We would go into a government, including with other parties, if uh, that government were to implement a break with capitalism, ending the rule of big business, and ushering in genuine socialist change uh, within society. 
we just don't think that that's uh, something that's uh, immediately on offer at the moment. A lot of your work recently has had to do with the solidarity campaign with Palestine. I know I think that's a campaign that's really resonated with people right across the country. And a lot of young people have been getting directly involved in that campaign. Why do you think it's resonated so deeply here and there's such a strong sense of solidarity here compared to other countries in the EU and across the world? Well, Ireland has had a history of national oppression and there is a a natural identification among ordinary uh, people with a, a people whose whose rights are being denied to them by a big power. But I, I think actually what was a big factor uh, here was the feeling among a generation in, you know, their, their, their teens and their 20s uh, of opposition to oppression full stop. Uh, we see that, for example, in relation to racial oppression with Black Lives Matter. We see it in relation to women's repression, uh, oppression with uh, repeal. And I think that was probably a bigger factor. Uh, in the identification with uh, the Palestinian cause. Uh, and I think that those factors exist in plenty of other countries in the world, uh, which is why the Palestine Solidarity Movement is an international movement uh, with, with real support uh, among young people. There may be certain extra support here, but I think it's an international phenomenon. So do you think that movements like Black Lives Matter and like Repeal has contributed to why so many young people are getting involved in socialist movements? Oh, definitely. No question. And do you think that that's going to have a knock-on effect to global politics just right across the board? I think that uh, a lot of young people who um, are getting political these days, their starting point is on issues of oppression. Uh, so opposition to racism, uh, opposition to sexism, uh, opposition to homophobia. I think that there is uh, a significant section of those young people who have drawn or are drawing the conclusion that this is not that that this is an issue of people's rights being denied by a system uh, and that uh, injustice and oppression is built into the dna of the system and of course if you draw that conclusion the next step is to say okay well how, how do we challenge the entire system and what's an alternative to it and that opens up a discussion about capitalism and socialism so yeah i do think so so do you think that all oppression is linked back to capitalism? There are a lot of oppressions which predate capitalism, but capitalism has taken them on board and, exacer- and exacerbated them, you know. So, you know, one of the great fighters against, you know, the oppression of the African-American community uh, in the US uh, was Malcolm X. And Malcolm X said, y- you cannot have capitalism without racism. In other words, the fight against one is linked to the fight uh, against the other. And I think that's at least as true today as it was when he was around. I know you worked quite closely on the Debenham strike. And I was wondering, what did that movement do for workers' rights in a capitalist society? Okay, well, I'd say the Debenham's workers, uh, when they came out on strike, um, had it in their minds that they were up against their employer. uh, But discovered relatively quickly that they were up against the government. They were up against um, the majority of the mainstream media uh, and they were up against um, uh, the state. For example, in a 50-day period between the start of April and the end of uh, May, uh, I reckon more than 300 members of the Garda Síochána were mobilised to physically remove Debenham's picketers and their supporters in order to allow non-union lorries uh, go in and take away disputed goods. So I think 
the experience of the strike has opened up uh, the eyes of a lot of those workers, overwhelmingly women workers, to the fact that uh, the entire system is geared against the interests uh, of workers. And although they didn't uh, win their dispute, uh, in one sense they do remain undefeated. And I think that, you know, in, in worker struggles for years to come, the Debenhams workers will, or at least many of them, will actively assist uh, those other groups of uh, uh, workers. I don't know if that answers your question. It did, and just to add to it, do you think that the whole issue kind of highlighted the importance for workers to be in a union? It highlighted the importance of being organised, right? The workers were all members of the of the union. Uh, they had their shop stewards, and the, the experience uh, of the shop stewards was uh, an important positive assist for the workers in fighting the battle. They will tell you, almost without exception, uh, that the union itself did not give anywhere near the kind of support that it could have given, that it should have given. And I think the conclusion that they would draw from it is that workers need to be organised. That more often than not will mean that workers need to be unionised, but they should rely on their own strength uh, rather than the conservative officialdom at the top of the unions. I, I think that's an important lesson of the dispute. Do you also think that it's important for workers to know their rights? Because I don't think a lot of people know all their rights as soon as they enter the workforce. Uh, yeah, uh, that's the case. Um, there is a, a strong trade union tradition among workers who would now be in their late 40s, 50s and 60s. I mean, union power reached its its peak in the 60s, the 70s and 80s. So people who were around at that time or who remember that time. But there's, you know, a lot of... Um, immigrant workers and a lot of young workers now in particular uh, who wouldn't have that trade union tradition and wouldn't have that knowledge of their rights but being in a workplace is a great educator and you, you have to shape up fairly quickly and you know it, 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 it becomes clear that you need to learn about your rights because your employer in many cases uh, is not going to uh, give them to you so you know uh, it, it's, it's the turn of a new generation to find out about uh, workers rights and how to organise if what you're saying is true and you know a lot of young people don't hold that sort of same value for trade unions is that why unions are so slow to speak up for young workers rights because you know we have a lot of age-based discrimination in terms of pay in ireland anyone under the age of 18 can earn as low as 707 an hour when you turn 18 that's moved to 808 an hour and 19 year olds can earn 909 an hour so you have full legal adults working in some cases full-time earning below the national minimum wage and trade unions are very very quiet on that even though age is one of the nine grounds of discrimination here in ireland i know it's not acceptable to discriminate in terms of pay for any other reasons but for some reason everybody seems to be okay that we do it based on age surely this is something unions should be very vocal about i think there there is an issue with the trade union movement in ireland which is um that uh it's led with some honourable exceptions by people who are quite conservative in their outlook, who've been brought up on the idea of social partnership, the idea that right-wing governments and employers are the partners of trade unionists, uh, when in reality the employers and the government have never been our partners. And I think part of the modus operandi of a conservative trade union officialdom is to not pay attention to the needs of the most exploited workers, the women workers, the immigrant workers, the young workers, uh, and so on. Uh, and I think that has to change. Uh, you see it in the United States, uh, where a lot of young workers who've been radicalized 
uh, by issues uh, like women's oppression, like uh, Black Lives Matter, are now organising unions uh, or trying to organise unions uh, in their workplace. And I hope that that's something that happens here. So yes, the future of trade unionism, uh, the futures of workers organising, the rights and the conditions and the needs of young workers has to be central to that. So do you think that all workers should be entitled to the minimum wage, regardless of age? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, I think the minimum wage is too low. I mean, the minimum wage is, what, €10.20 an hour. Well, if it's that low for adults, I mean, can you imagine doing the same work for 7 7 an hour with the same responsibilities and expectations put on you? Yeah, well, I mean, if you take one basic test, and that is that if you're a worker, uh, you shouldn't be forced to live at home with your uh, mum and dad. You should have the right, if you choose to exercise it, to go out uh, and to live your own life. And if you can't afford to buy a home, well, okay, rent a home. You know, the idea that you're going to rent a home uh, these days on the minimum wage. I mean, that's a bit of a pipe dream, isn't it? The, the minimum wage is too low. The minimum wage should be raised to 15 euro an hour. And all uh, workers, irrespective of, you know, whether they're 18 or 19, 20 or older, uh, should be entitled to that minimum. If we're talking about strong unions, you kind of have to look towards the ASTI and other teachers' unions because no other union in Ireland really has their power. And I know you've worked closely on a lot of education issues in the Dáil, so you know that kind of power that they have. Do you think that, not that it's a bad thing that they are a strong union, but do you think that their their strength is sometimes the detriment of students? Because regardless of a teacher's actions, they will always have the backing of the ASTI. Okay, well... I'd make a couple of points about that. The first thing is the ASTI is more powerful than uh, your average trade union. Uh, And that was shown when the government moved towards a lockdown uh, but tried to keep the schools open. Uh, And the ASTI quite rightly said, and I think most students would have supported them, no, that's not going to happen. You can't run the schools without us. That actually showed the power that workers have and it was very positive. Uh, It's also an example uh, of when the interests of students and teachers uh, coalesced because there was a common interest among students and teachers uh, that you know the health and safety of teachers and students would not be put at risk uh, by making the Leaving Cert God and keeping the, the schools open at all costs. Are there occasions uh, where the interests of teachers uh, and students can clash? Uh, yes, I think that there are. Uh, are teachers right uh, in any given situation? No, I don't think they are. But I do feel that there, uh, there is and there, there can be more common ground between students and teachers than is often imagined. For example, I think that's um, something that both students, student union, and teachers, teachers union, uh, should raise now for a debate in Irish society is the idea of open access to third level. That's an idea whose time has come. Uh, once upon a time, Uh, If you were in primary school, you had to jump through a lot of hoops to get to secondary. There was a thing called the primary cert. A minority of students went to secondary. That changed, all right? And now it has to change in relation to second going into third level. Instead of uh, a leaving certificate or uh, accredited grades, which act as a filter to say, okay, you guys get in and you guys don't get in, Uh, with a limited number of college places there needs to be a college place for everyone who wishes to avail of it uh, and remove well I think scrap the leaving cert but remove some of the stresses and strains that are involved around moving from one level to the next. Just to go back to what you were saying about kind of trying to find common ground between teachers and students 
Would you not agree that it's quite hard to find proper common ground when there's such a power imbalance in a classroom? Like if I was to go into a classroom now, you'd find a grown adult in a position of authority and then 30 children or teenagers who have to basically do whatever that adult says. I know that's not a power struggle that you see in other workplaces. A teacher can go in and if they're in a bad mood, they can essentially take out their frustration on these children and they can't really do anything about it because if they're if they're going to talk back if they're going to defend themselves that's seen as cheek that's not really visible in any other workplace if i work in retail and i take out my frustration on people you know customers are going to complain about me and i'll face repercussions for that if i work in an office and i'm mistreating the people around me there's a hr department who will deal with that but you don't really have that in schools you know you have some teachers even use fear to intimidate these children. Sure. Okay. I, first of all, I hear what you're saying. Okay. Uh, it's a long time ago, but I was a student once myself. Okay. The solution here is not to reduce the power of the teacher unions. The solution here is to increase the power of student organization and student rights within a school. Students in schools have very little rights. Uh, and that needs to change. So students should have the right to organise. Students should have the right to have representatives. Uh, student representatives should have the right to negotiate with the school authorities, maybe on a council, along with teachers' representatives, on how things are done. Disciplinary actions which are unjust, uh, unfair and demean uh, students uh, should not be tolerated. There will be teachers who have a problem with that, but there will be many other teachers who do not have a problem with that. Uh, and there needs to be a dialogue between students and those progressive teachers. Uh, so you need to re- raise the students up rather than bring the teachers down. That would be my view. And do you think that that movement has to come from within the students themselves? I think the, stu- the, the change can come from the students themselves. Um, I think that there have been more than one or two interesting examples in the last couple of years uh, of students uh, asserting their rights. Uh, We saw that in relation to the two Leaving Cert campaigns. Uh, But we also saw it in the schools where, for example, sexist uniform policies, uh, students protested against that, uh, where uh, students in Dublin have started a campaign against catcalling. And uh, these are very positive steps. So I'd be in favour of legal changes, which would give more rights uh, to students. But I also think that students organising from below can force change on this and that's probably the key actually. Do you think that these changes will ever actually happen as long as the Catholic Church keeps its stronghold over our education system? I think that uh, Catholic Church control uh, of education um, needs to end. I think that there needs to be a separation uh, of church and state. Uh, I don't see how you can have proper factual objective uh, sex education in schools where the church has power and influence. But I don't think you need to say, well, we'll wait until the big change happens and we have a separation of church and state. In the meantime, there are issues that can be campaigned on and fought for uh, and linked to the idea of a change in the way in which schools are run. You were kind of talking about there about how you know poor our sex, our sex education curriculum is as a whole, but I think that's way more true for LGBTQ plus sex ed, which is basically non-existent in our school. It's not only is it not done well, it's actually not even really touched upon. What kind of knock-on effect do you think that can have on queer students, that they don't see themselves represented on that curriculum at all? Well, it can't be positive. Uh, it has to be negative. And I noticed that um, the 
church is promoting a, a new a sex education policy that schools can opt into called Flourish, which basically says uh, that church teaching on marriage, in other words, that's, you know, a relationship between uh, a man and a woman uh, is of greater value uh, than same-sex relationships or other relationships. I mean, what effect does that have on the psychology of an LGBTQ student? What effect does it have on a student who goes home and has uh, gay parents? Uh, it teaches them that the relationship that your parents are in or the relationship that you have or that you aspire to is less than. That's homophobic, uh, that is uh, dangerous, and it is negative uh, for students. And it's, it's a reason why uh, this program should be stopped. And it's a reason why we should have objective, uh, factual sex education. And it's a reason why we need the separation of church and state. To be honest, I think those effects are kind of there, whether or not the school... Uh, opts into that system or even if they don't by not teaching queer sex ed in the same way it's still sort of sending that message that being gay or being trans or being queer in any way is very much the other and even if the system isn't being kind of actively homophobic it's not telling you oh being gay is wrong it can still say oh it's okay to be gay it's okay to be trans but what it's subconsciously telling students is that oh but that's not you that's not you, don't worry. You can, you know, it exists and it's fine and it's not wrong, but no, no, that's not you. You can learn about the cisgender heterosexual sex. And that can have really long-lasting implications on students who are trying to figure out these things about themselves. But something that I don't think a lot of people consider is that if you don't teach proper sex ed to queer students, they don't just not question it. You know, like, people need this information. There's a reason that it's on the curriculum to begin with, or there's a reason sex ed is on the curriculum to begin with and that's that people are curious about this and it's something that people need to know especially in their teenage years and if you don't give it to them in school they're going to look for it online and you know what they're going to find it isn't safe and it's really not something that young people should be exposed to well i'm not going to add anything to that joe i i totally agree with what you say great so i'll just kind of circle back to something you were saying a small while ago and that was that the leaving cert should be scrapped completely so if you get rid of this you know exam that's been around for decades and stuff what do we put in its place okay well I, I think there needs to be a debate and a discussion around that and i don't have all the answers okay but what i would say is the following number one the leaving cert is out of date it is uh, the most stressful set of exams for any group of young adults anywhere in europe and uh, it's biased against students from uh, lower income families uh, uh, students who suffer from anxiety and other students too so for all of these reasons i think it should be scrapped i think that you, you make it easier to find an, uh, an alternative solution if you have a policy of open access to third level to be clear that involves a lot of investment uh, you need to create you know 25,000 extra places uh, you need to give contracts to 10,000 part-time teachers and you need to hire another 10,000 teachers on top of that I think that um, there is in some countries a thing called omnibus entry where uh, your first year in college is not dealing with really narrow specific topics uh, but is more of a general education uh, and at the end of the year it can be determined as to which student should go on to you know the law course or the medicine course or you know the an alternative course to that uh, i think that that can hold the key so i know that that doesn't fully answer the question i don't have all the answers but i think if you if you scrap the leaving cert if you have a policy of open access and you fund it and you have omnibus entry 
you've solved 97 or 98 percent of the problem and you need to have the debate about how to fill in the gaps so pretty much all your solutions to the main problems that we have here in ireland relate back to large-scale public investment which is you know a main characteristic of socialism so let's say that all of your your ideas and your policies are implemented and ireland becomes an actual socialist state what does that look like here in ireland in 2021 you know are we talking about ireland out of the eu because if that's a capitalist organization you know are we leaving that it's kind of hard to contextualize it for people to realize what does socialism mean for this country in this current time period? What are we looking at there? Okay, well, let's come back to the issue of the EU and let's start by dealing with the fundamentals of it, all right? Essentially, uh, what it means is that the economy, the society, uh, is run for the needs of the majority of ordinary people uh, rather than uh, the profits and the privileges of the few, all right? So in order to do that, the wealth that is created by working people is owned and controlled by working people. The best way to do that is that you have public ownership uh, of the key dominant sectors of the economy. So the banks, the insurance companies, the building industry, the, the, the major industries are publicly owned and are run under a form of democratic control, popular control. So the workers have representatives on the board. The consumers have representatives on the board. You know, ordinary people have the dominant representation in relation to that. And then you you plan the economy to say, okay, uh, not how are, are we how are we going to make Jeff Bezos richer, but how are we going to provide a better health service? How are we going to provide a higher minimum wage? How are we going to have uh, open access to third level? All right. So your investment priorities are based. Uh, on the needs of people and alongside that crucially I think you would have to say uh, we now need to have a massive increase in the democratic rights and the civil liberties uh, of the people okay uh, so for example the additional restrictions uh, on abortion rights are removed students uh, representation is uh, recognized in law and is part of the modus operandi uh, in a school uh, in fact, the board of management which runs the school has to have significant student representation. Maybe not majority, but a significant student representation. There are votes now in society for people uh, at 16. Uh, and crucially, uh, in every workplace, in every education centre and in every neighbourhood, there are committees uh, which involve representation from uh, uh, below. Okay. So in other words, a socialist society would not just maintain democratic rights, uh, or it would not be less democratic as the apologists for the system try and maintain by using the example of the old Stalinist dictatorships, but actually would involve a massive increase in democratic rights and civil liberties uh, for people. They would be the two key changes. And, and when you've done that, okay, we can, we can now look at issues like EU, if you want to get onto that. I don't know if, if, if you want to jump to that straight away or you want to drill down into that a little bit more. I would like to talk about EU membership because, you know, it's something that a lot of socialists campaigned against or they campaigned against us joining in the first place. But now it's kind of blurry where different parties stand on it because a lot of parties to the left say it's a good thing for Ireland despite them holding socialist values. So where does Solidarity and the Socialist Party stand on our EU membership? OK, well, uh, I won't be blurry on that. All right. The European Union uh, is a bosses club, right? It's the big European corporations 
have been the drivers uh, of the European Union agenda. Basically, uh, they feel that in a, a globalised world, uh, that to compete with the bloc dominated by the United States and the bloc dominated by China, uh, that you need to have uh, a capitalist bloc uh, in Europe. So, would a socialist government in Ireland withdraw from the European Union? I think what is more likely to happen is a socialist government in Ireland is likely to be kicked out of the European Union. All right, But we would not uh, advocate uh, for uh, an isolationist uh, policy. We are internationalists. And we would appeal to uh, the working class people, to the young people of the entire continent of Europe, to rally in support of a socialist government uh, in Ireland. All right, uh, With street demonstrations, uh, with strikes... Uh, and to say, stop discrimination against this particular government. And we would encourage a mass movement in those countries to follow the example of Ireland. All right? So, for example, if you had, you know, Nixon had the theory of the domino theory. If you had a domino theory and you had one or two socialist governments and then the domino started to fall and it became three, four and five, right, we would be in favour of those governments and those states banding together for mutual cooperation in their mutual interests. All right? So as what you would have, you would be moving in the direction of is, if you like, a socialist United States of Europe, all right? as opposed to uh, a bosses or employers European Union. All right? So we're not in favour of uh, a nationalistic approach, uh, an isolationist approach, a return to the 1950s. We're internationalists, but we want Europe to be reorganised on a socialist basis. Do you not think it's a bit unrealistic, though, to expect four or five socialist governments to form around Europe when fascism is on the rise right across the continent? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I think what you have is, um, you know, you have that poem, is it Yeats, about uh, the centre cannot hold, referring to the 1930s. And you've begun to see the fracturing of the political centre. Uh, not just in Europe, but in the United States uh, as well, where, you know, the the so-called centre-right and so-called centre-left parties implemented a neoliberal agenda which saw a massive increase in social uh, inequality, driving back of, of rights for workers, particularly the most exploited groups of workers, uh, etc. Uh, and you have, you have a, 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 an anger uh, and a backlash against that. And in some countries, it's gone to the left. In other countries, it's gone to the right. I think it's fair to say that the, the, the stronger trend has been for it to go to the right. So you've had uh, the likes of Trump, Trumpism uh, in the United States, the rise of uh, racist and xenophobic parties like the Front National with Le Pen in France. Uh, and you see it particularly pronounced in Eastern Europe. But I actually think that... Um, uh, at a certain point, uh, we'll see the pendulum swinging, all right? Uh, and uh, in the main, it won't swing back to a centrist position. It'll swing back to say, okay, we need to find uh, a different and a more genuine avenue for genuine change for ordinary people, uh, and opportunities will open up uh, for the left. Uh, so I think that the, the rise of the rise is something that has to be taken seriously, uh, but I don't think it spells a doomsday scenario as such. Do you think that people's frustration with the pandemic has kind of led to more people turning towards the far right? Because they were the only ones advocating for an end to lockdown, you know, saying no to vaccines and that that type of thinking. Yeah, I think that the uh, the pandemic and the lockdown period uh, has clearly given a certain boost to the politics of the far right. 
I think we see that uh, in Ireland, where they've gone from being virtually nothing to being uh, still a very small but a growing force. I think that we saw the rise of conspiracy theories uh, during the pandemic, and the conspiracy theory milieu has is, is something which the far right, you know, is an, a natural bedfellow of and have been able uh, to tap into. Having said that, I think that there is a need for a sense of proportion, uh, and I think that actually a dominant mood among ordinary people during the pandemic was not a mood of embracing conspiracy theories or the agenda of the far right, but was actually a mood of solidarity that was shown by the discipline that people showed with social distancing, the wearing of masks, uh, the support uh, for health service workers in particular, but you know, uh, key essential workers in other uh, jobs like transport and retail as well. And in fact, what the pandemic has done is it's really highlighted the crucial and essential role played by the working class within society. And I think that um, there are groups of workers now, like health service workers, uh, when they push their issues to the fore, whether it be on pay and conditions or an improved health service, will speak with enormous moral authority in society, not just in Ireland, but internationally. And if we end up in a scenario, you know, in four or five years' time, and one of those far-right parties gets enough seats to gain full speaking rights in the doll, what do you think that could mean to have that sort of ideology platformed there? How do you mean, what do you think it could mean? As in, what could it mean for Irish society if these fascist views are platformed in our national parliament and treated as, as if it's an acceptable view to hold. Because I think, you know, with other ideologies, whether it's socialism, social democracy, neoliberalism, or even conservatism, you know, you can have that kind of healthy debate and you can kind of see where everyone's opinion is coming from. But with fascism, it's rooted in, in fear and in hatred. And, you know, I, I really don't think it's acceptable to treat these ideologies as acceptable. But given the current democratic system that we have, if they get enough seats and they gain full speaking rights, they'll have to be. So what could that mean for society? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Um, the first point I'd make is that while I wouldn't say that there are, uh, you know, fascist or far-right organisations represented in the doll, I think that there are, uh, you do see a number of TDs who act as apologists for them. I think uh, Matty McGrath, for example, has acted as a, an apologist uh, for the politics of, of, of the far right uh, in the current doll, and he hasn't been completely alone uh, in that. I think it's... Um, I'm not at, at all complacent, but I think it's unlikely that far right parties will find representation uh, in the next parliament. Uh, but if they did, um, you know, their, their ideas need to be fought all along the line. And part of that... Uh, is uh, an ideological uh, response uh, dismantling their uh, lines of argument. For example, it was interesting that, you know, Solidarity uh, People Before Profit had uh, a bill being debated in the Dáil last week uh, on the right to housing, uh, which would insert into the Constitution uh, the constitutional right of people to a, to, to a house. And it was opposed, opposed strongly by the far right. Uh, who tried to put forward the argument that this is the left trying to trying to take people's homes off them? Uh, of course, the real agenda there is that you know more than one or two supporters of the far right uh, in this country are big landlords uh, who saw it as uh, a restriction on their ability to exploit the housing crisis uh, in their own uh, in their own uh, interests. So we would expose the agenda 
of the far right by giving examples like that there are many others you were saying there that your motion to make housing a constitutional right was opposed by the far right uh, was it not also opposed by government the government um the, the government uh said that they would allow it to pass to third stage which is committee stage now they did that not because they are supporters of a constitutional right to housing they did it because they know that the housing crisis is so severe that they're being watched very carefully and that it would prove deeply unpopular for them to oppose it so it was a tactical uh, support and no doubt they'll have a quiet word in the ear of their representatives in the housing committee to make sure that that issue is forced down the agenda and isn't taken quickly at third stage they have said that they intend to bring forward their own proposal for a constitutional referendum on the right to housing but uh, we haven't seen the colour of their money on that yet and I think it'll be a very very watered down version when we do. Do you think that maybe one of the reasons we don't have a strong standalone far-right party in this country is because they feel so at home in parties that occupy the political centre? I think that um, no I I, I think that um, uh, the far-right have found it difficult to get a foothold here compared to other uh, countries uh, for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons has been that a lot of the discontent and anger at the system has been uh, captured uh, by the radical left, by the socialist left. For example, the energy that we saw around the anti-water charges campaign uh, was strongly linked with the Socialist Party, Solidarity, People Before Profit, you know, radical left uh, forces. I think that, you know, undoubtedly uh, there are people in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, sometimes on councils, uh, etc., who would be articulating their arguments which would overlap uh, with the far right, but they've probably tended to be uh, articulated more generally by some of the right-wing populist independents. Uh, and, you know, no doubt they will be looking towards uh, the likes of the council elections in 2024. Uh, and that's why their ideas and their organisations need to be challenged all along the line. It's an important part of what the left needs to do in this country now. Earlier on you were saying that you know a lot of young people are turning to socialism as a response to these concerns that they have about things like oppression and stuff. But if you look at polling numbers, they're turning far more to the likes of the Social Democrats and Sinn Féin. And earlier on you'd said that those weren't actually socialist parties. So why do you think young people are turning more towards these parties than they are towards yourselves or to people before profit? There's a couple of reasons. Um, one is because, certainly in the case of Sinn Féin, they're bigger. So a lot of young people will say, OK, we want to take out Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. Uh, it's more effective to cast a vote for the bigger anti-Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael party than the smaller one. I think as well, people tend to go for the easier option and uh, might feel at this stage that going for a break with capitalism and full-blown socialist change, that's a very radical step, which of course it is. Maybe we can sort out you know, the housing issue or the health service issue or the inequality issue, etc., uh, with you know, not such a drastic change. So you know, we'll try the Social Democrats. We'll try Sinn Féin. I think that's understandable. And if the Social Democrats and Sinn Féin uh, deliver real, tangible, positive change all along the line, that'll be the end of the matter. But if they don't, uh, and I think if they continue to work within the framework of the system, they won't, well then it poses, up, poses the question of a shift further left. All right. So in that sense, we're playing not just a short-term game or a medium-term game, we're playing a, 
a long-term game here. This is this is going to play out over years, not just weeks and months. So you don't think that social democracy is enough to bring about the type of change that you think we need? No, I don't. I mean, social democracy stands for the reform of capitalism, right? Now, I'm in favour of reform. I mean, if you were to, you know, double the state spend on public housing, if you were to increase the minimum wage to 15 euro, those are not... That's not a revolution. Those are reforms. I support those reforms, and I would advocate and, and attempt to be among the best fighters uh, for them. But what I am opposed to is reformism. And what I mean by that is the idea that you can work within the framework of the current existing economic and social system and delivering lasting and positive change uh, for ordinary people. Uh, I think that's uh, a pipe dream. Uh, I think that as long as the economy and the world is controlled by millionaires, billionaires and a couple of hundred big corporations, that economic and social justice uh, will not be uh, delivered or certainly will not be fully delivered uh, and therefore that you need to go further. So if social democracy is you know, an attempt to reform the system, I think uh, it falls well short of what's needed at the moment and I also think that there is it is a minority you're absolutely right but I believe that there's a significant minority of young people in in particular who are looking uh, beyond that uh, at this stage. I've seen some people online from your own party say that there's no difference between voting for a centre-left party and between voting for a capitalist party and do you think there's there's any difference between social democracy and capitalism as it currently stands or do you think that there is a difference between the two yeah i i i I think that uh look i think if someone is uh their family votes fianna fall finnegale and they're going to shift now and uh you know the young members of that family are going to vote for Sinn fein or vote for the social democrats would i shrug my shoulders and say sure that doesn't make a figure difference I think in terms of the thinking of those young voters, that's a step forward. That's a positive change. Uh, the argument that I would make to them is that it is not a change that goes far enough. Uh, you need to go further than that because you have a system which is run by millionaires, billionaires, a small number of big corporations. And unless you're prepared to break with that uh, and go for a, a different system, a new system entirely, uh, you're going to be running up against this problem all the time. So, uh, in that sense, I, I don't think it does represent the change that's needed. Uh, but does it represent uh, a step forward in people's thinking? Uh, well, I think it would be uh, a bit crude to say that it doesn't. So you think Social Democrats, the ideology, not the party, but that they're on the right track, but you don't fully think they're there yet? You need to go further along that path, I think, yeah. Thanks for talking to me today, Mick. Take care. So that was Socialist Party and Solidarity TD Mick Barry. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Next week I'll be joined by former Green Party candidate Saoirse McHugh and we'll be talking about environmentalism and eco-socialism. If you want to find me on social media, it's at Costigan underscore on Twitter. Thanks very much for listening.